Last week, I introduced you to some of the historical background of the New Testament. My hope was to show you how many of the first century people thought and what their presuppositions were about the long-awaited Messiah that the Jewish nation was longing for. By presuppositions, I mean the underlying things that people believe that we barely notice. Yet these things affect our interpretation of events, or in our case, the scriptures. We all have them. Our culture, our upbringing, what part of the country we grew up in, all of these things teach us subtle beliefs that cause us to read or interpret something with our own unique bend. The first century Jews were no different. They too were affected by their culture, their experiences, and their underlying assumptions of how things were supposed to be. In order to work well with scripture, we must become aware of what these presuppositions are. So as we read the text, we can adjust our thinking because we understand how we think, what affects our thinking. This is why it's so important to start with the original context, understanding what the original author meant by the text that we're reading. Last week, I challenged you to try to become aware of your own presuppositions, your own bend to how you interpret the world around you. For example, when you think of a hero, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Do you think of a war hero, maybe someone who played a key role in history to help bring us freedom? Someone who was brave and stood up to the bad guys like a Captain America or one of the Avengers? What, what do you think of when I use the word hero? In 2015, there were two major movie releases that came out at a similar time. The first was a movie called Selma. It was a historical drama based on the 1965 Selma to Mount Montgomery voting rights marches, the ones that were led by a man named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I've always been interested in how Martin Luther King Jr. led the people and their rights movement. Instead of violence, he, he preaches nonviolence. One of the lines that he said that has always stuck out to me is this. He said, I want to win the battle with my enemy by letting them hurt me rather than me hurting them. I want to win the battle by being beaten rather than beating. I want to win the battle through love rather than hate. That line has always stuck out to me, but it wasn't until I became a Christian that I figured out where Martin Luther King Jr. got that idea from. He was taking it, folks, from Jesus. You see, he was a young pastor at the time, and this was his understanding of how to change the world. He encouraged people to take a stand for injustice, but he did it in the context of nonviolence and love for our enemies. At the same time that Selma came out, there was another movie that was out about a different kind of American hero. This movie was titled American Sniper. Now, I'm assuming I don't have to go into much detail about what this movie subject matter is, but it's important to note that what the American sniper was famous for was how many kills he had accomplished. Now, I want you to notice something. Two movies out at the same time, both of them giving us historical stories about an American hero. Which movie do you think did the best at the box office? It was American Sniper by far. 
You see, even though Selma was nominated for many awards, the general public was more interested in a movie about who, who they classified as a hero, the American sniper with the most kills ever in history. I tell you this story because I want you to see how presuppositions work. Many people in America would see the American sniper as a hero over someone like Martin Luther King. The box office actually proves it. Our culture, when we think of a hero, leans towards someone who fights the enemy and wins for the people, rather than a person who lays down their weapons and loves. That's kind of a lame story. It's not exciting enough. We want to battle with a hero that beats the bad guy. So that becomes our subtle presupposition. When there's conflict, our natural assumption or reaction is to fight, or you're considered a coward. So, I understand why someone might hear what Martin Luther King Jr. said and, and balk at it. When you've been taught your entire life that the solution to feeling threatened is to fight, you won't like it when someone tells you the opposite. That's exactly how the Jewish people were. For generations, they waited for a warrior king to emerge to fight their, to fight for their peace and their freedom. Instead, Jesus came as a suffering servant, exactly like their prophet Isaiah said, willing to give up his life and lay down his sword. Now, despite what Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah, the Jews were waiting for the opposite, a king who would fight for their freedom by conquering the Gentiles and establishing a kingdom that is under Jewish tradition and belief, a kingdom that is a Jewish nation more powerful than all the others. One of the starting points for us to understand our internal thoughts, our natural way of thinking, is to actually look at a person's actions. How do we respond in action to any given situation? Our actions tell us a lot about our subtle presuppositions, like what movie do you prefer and why? So this week as we continue to look at what the New Testament says about love and non-resistance, I want, I want to walk you through some narratives that show us how Jesus reacts when he's offered power, authority, and status. Essentially, when he's offered the, the ability to become the warrior king that the Jews expected. As we read these passages today, pay close attention to what all of the characters are saying. It'll become obvious that Jesus' followers are still expecting a warrior king to emerge. Time and time again, throughout all the gospel narratives, Jesus is offered a chance to become a warrior king, yet his response to these opportunities is not what his followers expected. The first narrative that I want to look at is from the Gospel of Luke. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 1. And, and this first narrative is an interaction at the beginning of Jesus' ministry between the devil and Jesus, between Satan and Jesus. Now, most of our Bibles would title this section of Scripture, The Temptation of Jesus. The devil, or Satan, is about to give us a glimpse into how humanity thinks, and he hopes to suck Jesus into being just like us. So let's read Luke's Gospel, starting at chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all the time and became very hungry. 
Then the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say that people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they're mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, jump off, for the scripture said he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with your hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So for 40 days, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's tired and very hungry because he hasn't eaten. Now, these are important details because it shows us that Jesus, as a human being, is at his weakest point. Tired and hungry is really not a good place to be for any of us when it comes to making any major decision in life. So don't miss the setup in the text. In human terms, Jesus is very vulnerable to temptation at this point in the story. And the first thing that Satan tempts Jesus with is all power, all the power and survival. The power to relieve the stress that Jesus is under by turning a rock into bread so that he would no longer be hungry. Satan wants Jesus to use his supernatural abilities as God in the flesh to help himself. But what is Jesus' response? He says people don't live by bread alone. Jesus declines Satan's temptation to fulfill his own personal needs, choosing to trust in something or someone bigger than food. He doesn't, he doesn't hold on to this physical life the way that Satan wants him to. Instead, he places his trust in God's will. If the Father wants me to die, then so be it. I'm not going to use my power to meet my own needs. That's not what power is for. Now, this is interesting, especially in the context of assuming Jesus would be the king that the people wanted. What, what kind of king doesn't use all the, pow all the power and might that they've been given for their own gain? Now, then we see Satan tempt Jesus with the ultimate temptation. He offers the Messiah the opportunity to be the king that everyone wanted. Satan offers Jesus everything. All the authority and power over everything. All the kingdom could, kingdoms could be his right now. No more suffering, no more war. All Jesus has to do is worship Satan. Again, Jesus points to God being the only one that we can worship. In other words, we can't worship powerful kingdoms. We can't worship authority. We can only worship God. Don't miss the significance of these statements. 
Satan offers Jesus the opportunity to be the king that everyone wants him to be. And his response is that he can't do things that way because it would be worshiping something other than God. This would go against what God wants for his people. You see, to us, power is important. To Jesus, power is dangerous. Power can lead a person away from God and into idolatry. Let's take a quick look at another narrative. All four Gospels describe a feeding of more than 5,000. It's clear in each account that Jesus has become extremely popular. His healings and teachings have attracted massive crowds. The people are standing to speculate who Jesus might be. Is he Elijah or some kind of new prophet? Each of the four accounts tell us the same story. Jesus takes a boat with his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get some rest from the crowds. But thousands rush around the north end of the lake and they greet him on his arrival. Filled with compassion, the text says, he miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. So Jesus feeds over 5,000 people simply because he has compassion for them. All four Gospels tell us this. But John's Gospel, in chapter 6, he gives us some extra info after the 5,000 have been fed. In John chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, listen to what John tells us. He says, When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet, or some say king, we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, given what we know about the violent messianic movements in Galilee and Judea in the few decades before and after Jesus' public ministry, the implication in this text is clear. The group, over 5,000 people, want Jesus to be their messianic king. The kind of king that everyone expects that will lead them into conquering the Gentiles. So what action does Jesus take? <laughs> he leaves. You, you know, mo most of us would be like, my time has arrived. Like, let's do this. I'm about to be famous. I'm about to have all the power a king could ever have. But not Jesus. He just literally leaves. Now, it gets even more interesting if we jump over to Luke's Gospel. Right after Luke shares the same story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, he follows up with the story of Jesus asking his disciples who they think he is. You can find this in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. Now, when Jesus asked who they think he is, Peter responds with, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus accepts this answer, but immediately follows it with an explanation that he must suffer and die. Now, according to Mark's Gospel, Peter can't accept this teaching from Jesus, and he actually rebukes Jesus. Now, Jesus' response is important. He says in Mark 8, verse 33, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus accepts the messianic title, but rejects the assumption of a Messiah leading them into war. Instead, Jesus says the Messiah will suffer and die in order to accomplish what he's came to do. 
Jesus literally calls Peter to take Peter's take of the Messiah being a warrior king as a satanic kingship, a kingship that actually is of the world, not of God, something that's from Satan. So the people want Jesus to be their king, and instead Jesus says he is their king, but not the kind that they expected. Instead of power and authority, Jesus is going to lay down his life through suffering. And Peter and the others, like they just can't fathom this. How could this possibly be? Simply because of their presuppositions of who they think the Messiah should be. Jesus is given, given opportunity to be a warrior king, but instead he turns it down and becomes a suffering servant. Jesus literally chooses the cross rather than being a warrior. Let's quickly take a look at a few more narratives, just so I can show you just how consistent Jesus is with this message through his actions. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Mark is leading up to the setting of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. As I've said a million times, when reading the Bible, always read what's before and what's after a passage that you're trying to understand. So let's take a quick look at how Mark sets up the triumphant entry narrative that we find in chapter 11. In verse 47 of chapter 10, we see as Jesus, we see as Jesus and his disciples are walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, a blind beggar calls out to Jesus for healing. Now notice the words that the man uses. Jesus, son of David, he says, have mercy on me. Remember last week I said they wanted a king like David, who was a warrior? Now this is also the same chapter that Mark places the arrogant request of James and John. He does that in verse 37. They ask Jesus, you know, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, it's obvious that they're not saying this in the context of suffering and dying. They want to be seated at the right and left hand of the new king after he wins the big battle. These are subtle narratives that Mark places into the gospel account on purpose. He's showing us something, setting up the next scene. Now, also note the time of year that it is and what's going on. They're all going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And historically, in Jewish writings, the Messianic king was to come to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. You see, this is all a setup leading us into Jesus' most public declaration in chapter 11, where Jesus decides to ride into Jerusalem in the fashion of a king. Mm, kinda. In the first century, Whenever a king would enter a city, they would come with a big processional riding on a big white horse in royal style in full battle garb, all while the people bowed down to them. The Gospels share this same story, except there's some interesting differences. King Jesus rides in on a donkey. And Matthew and John both, both quote this passage out of the Old Testament. They both, interestingly enough, quote Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice, O people, starting at verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble 
riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove, listen to what it says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. You see, they quote the part of the text in Zechariah that references a peaceful figure. Jesus is making a very powerful point. He's the Messiah, but he's not the violent military conqueror the rebels desire. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says this about the triumphant entry. He says, Jesus was announcing that he was indeed a king, but not a warrior king. His actions demonstrate that his rule should not be confused with the revolutionaries' plans for a national uprising against Rome. In other words, Jesus is no man of war. Instead, he is a humble leader riding a lowly donkey. Again, his actions show us his posture of humility and peace. Now, let, let's look at one last narrative, just, just for kicks. Trust me, there are many more, but time just won't allow me to give you all of the examples. Maybe if you join us in an online discussion that we're going to be launching in February, uh, I can give you a lot more of the passages that would uh, explain all of this. But let's just take a moment to look at one more narrative. Jesus is arrested in the garden. And in that narrative, Jesus rebukes Peter for trying to defend him with the sword. Jesus then adds this in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 26, when Peter jumps up and, and, uh, and swings his sword and cuts the, the person's ear off, this is how Jesus responds. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? Now, we have to read this statement of Jesus within its historical context. Whereas contemporaries believed and taught that God would intervene miraculously to defeat their enemies if the Jews would rise up in armed rebellion. With that in mind, it becomes clear that Jesus has an opportunity here to become the violent messianic king that the people want. He has the ability to call on the angels, asking God to intervene. But he knows that this is not the kind of kingdom the Father has sent him to establish. Jesus made this clear in his discussion with Pilate. When Pilate asked if he was uh, the king of the Jews, we see this in the Gospel of John in John chapter 18 when Pilate is asking him are you the king of the Jews Jesus says my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom if it were my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders but my kingdom is not of this world you see if his kingdom was like all the kingdoms here on earth people would be fighting. But the kingdom of God is different. As we continue through this series, the next few weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches about love and non-resistance. We've just spent the past 30 minutes 
seeing how Jesus responded to the temptation of being a warrior king. He responded with peace, not violence. The action Jesus takes in response to violence is the pathway of peace. You see, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was the incarnate God, God in the flesh, that God came and lived with us and experienced life just like we do, and he calls his followers to be like him, to act like Jesus, to love like Jesus. The church that Jesus established here on earth is called to make peace through the means of love. There really is no other option presented in all of Scripture. It's the posture that Jesus took in the midst of opposition, and it's the posture that he calls all of us who believe in him to take as well. The way of violence, Jesus says, is the way of evil. So he calls his church to live in the light and to show the world a different way of doing life here on earth. In these difficult times, I can't help but grieve the way many who claim to be in Christ have been responding. So today I want to make this simple. I want to make this very clear. Jesus followers, it's time to be like Jesus and become who he calls us to be. It's time to be people who love our neighbors and lift up the poor. It's time to become people who reject violence and actively give away our power in order to lift someone up who needs Jesus. I encourage you folks to start reading through the gospel accounts, all four of them, and pay close attention to the posture that Jesus takes. It's the posture he calls all of us to take in the midst of this crazy, broken world. Next week, we're going to take a look at not just Jesus' actions, but we're going to look at what Jesus taught about this subject, and specifically in his Sermon on the Mount. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the rest of Jesus' teachings. Each one of us brings our own presuppositions to the way we understand Jesus and what it means to follow him. Our culture is saturated with violence, and from a very young age, we're taught that heroes are people with incredible strength and power, and sometimes weapons, who use force to conquer evil. But Jesus shows us that in the kingdom of God, it's self-giving, sacrificial love that truly overcomes evil, not by ignoring the things that are wrong in our world, but by using creative, nonviolent ways to work towards peace and justice. So take a minute to reflect on your own presuppositions when it comes to your faith. Are there any preconceptions that you have that are distorting the way you view Jesus and what he calls us to as his followers? Are there areas of your life where you've been putting too much value on power or success or even wishing harm on the people that you disagree with or consider your enemies? Take a minute to confess that area to God now. And now, how is Jesus inviting you to represent his kingdom in your life? After reflecting on the way that Jesus responded to people's attempts to turn him into a warrior king, 
after reflecting on his humility and his love, how is Jesus inviting you to represent his kingdom in our world today? In a world that's filled with so much division and violence, Jesus calls us to be people who live differently, to shine light in the darkness, to bring peace into situations of conflict, and to overcome hatred with love. Let's seek to be people who bring the hope of his kingdom into our broken world.